You've joined the Beat Max Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rendered Flash Gordon. Watching with me is Marty from Thunderballs.org. Hi, Marty, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on again. That's my pleasure. Welcome back. The uh, A View to a Kill episode was a very enjoyable, popular one. Um, I think that, that was the longest one I did, actually. I think that was about two and a half hours in the end. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, thank you for bringing your Betamax copy of this Flash called None of this Ultra HD 4K nonsense. So um, why Flash Gordon? Okay. It's difficult. It's like a two-part answer in a way. And it started when I saw it as a kid. And this sounds like I'm pulling your leg here, but I actually saw it for the first time on Betamax. It was um, my uncle. I persuaded him to rent it from the local video shop. You remember the score. It was like the Betamax had about three, three copies of the film that you wanted. And the VHS section had about 25 copies of the film. <laughs> and um, you could never get to see the film that you wanted to see. So I, I think I pestered my uncle for, for weeks to, to rent Flash Gordon because I'd, I'd heard that it was a bit like Star Wars. Oh boy, how wrong yeah. was that? <laughs> <laughs> it is in some ways, hmm. but um, quite different to probably what I was expecting, but it didn't detract from it at all. I thought it was a great yarn. And the things that I enjoyed about it then, I kind of view through a different sort of prism now in older older age. So yeah, it's it's good because uh, I enjoyed it for what the, the sort of the childish kind of fun adventure element to it and when I first saw it. But now I see it in a very different light. This promises well, this promises well. I mean, I, I watched it today um, in, in preparation for this and it was the first time I'd watched it all the way through in well, maybe at least five, five or six years. and. It is interesting to watch, as you say, in, in the context of when this came out, sort of towards the end of 1980. And, you know, you and I have spoken about Bond and uh, Bond is a recurring theme throughout many of these episodes. And But we don't often talk about Star Wars and the influence that Star Wars had on cinema. You know, the, the whole era of the blockbuster starting sort of arguably with Jaws and then Star Wars took it off in all these strange directions and, you know, we could talk about Moonraker if we're talking down the James Bond route, but you can see in this that it was so heavily influenced by Star Wars just from the way it was, you know, the, the time that it's come out and everything about it. And it, I guess, I mean, you're quite a big Star Wars fan as well. And I mean, watching the two, you know, is that a comparison that you think is fair or can you see the influence in that as well? Well, I mean, I don't know how much you know about the origins of Star Wars, but George Lucas originally wanted to make Flash Gordon and he'd approached mm. um, Dino De Laurentiis for the rights. He had, he had the rights at the time, Dino turned him down. So George went away and wrote his own space opera, which became quite sex successful, I guess. But um, yeah, and I think it's, it's weird to think that the success of Star Wars then prompted Dino to then really get the kind of ball rolling on Flash Gordon, you know? And as did a lot of films, yeah, like the Bond, like Moonraker was a direct influence of Star Wars. They'd, they'd planned another film, hadn't they? They'd planned a whole different film. And then they changed tack at the last minute. But um, I don't think it's a fair compare. I mean, I think there's, you can see similarities in the general themes of this kind of uh, ruler of the universe and your hero and 
his plucky band of adventurers trying to sort of take him down. So the, the, the themes are there, but I think the, the execution and is quite different. I mean, it's, they are both, had, they have humor inherent in them, but I don't think Flash Gordon, I don't think they, it came out the way they intended. I mean, it's a bit like my cooking, really. <laughs> you start off with an idea and it turns into something else. So it's is funny. I mean, we we've talked about doing this for a while, and and in that time, the film got in the summer of 2020 this huge sort of well-marketed, publicized release as a remastered 4K Blu-ray and all that stuff. And it's well above my head. I'm still on the old analog ways, but there was clearly so much love for it out there. There's a lot of people and, you know, admittedly uh, probably mostly men of, of roughly our age who grew up watching it and, and loved it and still do. And, and there is, it is reassuring to hear that despite the many flaws and the troubles and production and everything about it, you know, the, the way it's kind of lurched and there's all these scenes that were filmed that weren't included because they didn't make any sense and some that were included that don't make any sense but there's still such a love for it and when you talk about it on Twitter and again Twitter the cesspit it, that it is but it's still people come out and saying oh I love that film and everything about it. there's so many links you know we I mean we've already talked about Bond and Star Wars and there's all this yeah. stuff and it was just such a treat to just sit down you know, no distractions and, and watch it and kind of let it wash over you a little bit. And I guess it's one of those films, especially with quite a, I call it an overbearing soundtrack. Cause I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun and, you know, I mean, I, I quite like Queen, but that soundtrack is big. You know, they go into it the whole, the whole way through the film, but I mean, I, is, I really enjoyed watching it. It is a big soundtrack and, and I'll, I'll come into this in a bit, but I actually think it's one of the, most overlooked soundtracks of all time in a way. It's obviously it's a famous soundtrack. We, we all know Queen did the soundtrack to Flash, but it doesn't appear on any kind of greatest soundtrack list of all time. I mean, I, I mean, I did a bit of research in the last couple of days just to kind of try and satisfy my uh, desire to know where it stood, you know I mean, on these kind of lists. No, Rolling Stone, I'll say, had a top 25 and it wasn't even on the list, right? Pitchfork had a top 50 and it wasn't on there, right? You've got the soundtrack to Clueless, which is on there. Th Harper's mm. Bazaar, 30 of the best soundtracks of all time, and it doesn't feature. And I just think that because I think potentially because of the way that we intrinsically connect the music to the images and the style of the film, we kind of, it gets detracted in some way. There's a kind of, I don't know, and this, I think in some ways, and this, this is a bit of a bold claim, right? And some people will be shouting me down for this. But I think in some respects, the soundtrack to Flash is comparable to Vangelis's soundtrack to Blade Runner. Hmm. And I think that sections of the Flash soundtrack could be easily laid on top of the imagery of Blade Runner. And I think it would have been entirely accepted and regarded as the, the classic that it is. Um, yeah. But saying that, though, <laughs> there are some moments in it which are kind of quite in your face and not to everyone's taste. So I can understand that as well. But I just think that it's overlooked in terms of the amount of kind of effort and the way that the, the band members kind of individually 
crafted this soundtrack and they had complete creative control as to what they were going to do. And it just, there's nothing else quite like it. I think if you can create a piece of work which is unlike anything else within its genre or even within the world of movie, movie soundtracks, I think it's something worth talking about. But the fact that it doesn't make any of these lists, it's just not cool. It's not cool to like Queen, is it? <laughs> Apparently. Well, no, well, no that's, that's something I, I have noticed over you know, a period of time where, you know, that there is, it's difficult to find. And I don't know if the, the film, the Bohemian Rhapsody film kind of influenced anyone in that, but there is almost a Marmite element to Queen. If you love them or you hate them, there isn't an awful lot. You don't see, and again, you know, talking on the internet where you don't get reasoned debate, but I think it's, it's one of those things where you see you know, a lot of the soundtracks of films, you know, people glow about, I don't know anything with John Williams or some, you know, some of the stuff. And I mean, we we talked about it on on our previous podcast about John Barry doing the many Bond films he did and how iconic they looked at. And this seems like I'm not sure it's because it is it, the the soundtrack to this is doing quite a bit of heavy lifting. It's so prominent, and I don't know. It just seems I find it strange as well that it's something that maybe there is that queen snobbery and i think there is an element of if you don't like queen you're not going to like the film and and it's one of those kind of polarizing arguments that you can have but i mean yeah that that opening song you know just flash it's just such a famous piece of music it's a famous piece of music from film and i don't know that that I mean, we, we can talk about this as well, the way that Flash Gordon fed into that whole weird story in uh, the movie Ted. But it's, um, you know, you, you hear that song if it comes on the radio, it comes on Spotify or something like that, and you instantly think of Flash Gordon. That's, I mean, that's the name, but it's, it's there. It hits you over the head. And I, I think for this film, I mean, it was perfect. And imagine getting Queen at that time to sit and do a soundtrack for a film that you're hoping to be the next Star Wars, the next big thing. I mean, it was really bold of the producers to, to have a go at it, even if I think, but from what I read that the De Laurentiis had no idea who Queen were. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think it does. It's the, it shows an intent that they wanted to do something a bit different or completely different to Star Wars. They were trying to do the opposite in a way, weren't they? But I think, mm. it, I mean, it matches the, the tone of the film. I mean, you do kind of wonder if they had adopted a more serious tone with the way that the lines were delivered and they had a full orchestral score in the way that they'd done with Star Wars. You kind of, it could have turned out very, very different. But at the same time, you've got Shakespearean actors like Timothy Dalton delivering some of the most ridiculous <laughs> hammy lines in cinema <laughs> and it's just it, you wonder if they wanted it to be if they if they didn't want it to be funny you would have thought that that dino you think would he would have sort of said look can you just tone that down a little bit but um i don't know i don't know i mean three times the budget of star wars as well three times the budget <laughs> Well, it went somewhere. It probably went it up went, someone's nose. 
<laughs> Somebody benefited from it anyway. <laughs> you know, again, coming back to this, you know, where, where we talk about the links to previous episodes. I mean, the, this film is directed by the director of Get Carter. Um, it's also the same director for Morons from Outer Space, if, we, if we're playing that game. But there's just such a, a broad range of talent, you know, both sort of on and off the screen and the cast. I mean, it's such a, you've got Timothy Dalton, you've got Brian Blessed, Max von Sydow, uh, Sam Jones, who is, you know, the, the ultimate, I suppose. He's playing this like he won a competition. He's he's living his best life doing this role. I mean, he's a dreadful actor. They overdubbed most of his lines. Yeah, and yet yeah. and yet, when you see him on screen, you just think, he just looks like he's having fun, which is all you want, really. You don't want someone there with a miserable face on him. It's Flash Gordon. Come on, he's got to enjoy himself. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not played earnestly, that's for sure. Yeah, just in terms of the Star Wars connection as well, um, Gilbert Taylor, who's the cinematographer for Star Wars Episode Four, also was the guy that shot this film as well. There's, I mean, there's quite, I mean, the, the cast, there's a ridiculous amount of James, uh, players from the James Bond series in this film. And that's uh, without counting Never Say Never Again, I guess. That's always a controversial subject for some people. Yeah, yeah, well, the same writer, wasn't it, for Never Say Never Again? Mm. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> this film is great. This film is great. It's, it's I mean, again, like watching when it, when it opens and the titles, I, I kind of forgot a little bit about how much is interspersed with, um, with pictures and, and from the actual comics. You know, they're, they're kind of building this in a way that I think the Superman movie very lightly touched upon in the opening where, you know, they're going back to the comic days. And this is, I mean, it's quite heavily laid on, but, you know, interspersed with the, the iconic theme and, and the graphics as well. There is, you know, reminding people almost like if you're of an age where you'd grown up reading Flash Gordon comics or seeing the sort of TV serials. And I think that's where the, the theme for me and, and some of the music does work if you kind of look at it in, you know, the cartoons when when we were younger, when you sort of He-Man and Thundercats and all that sort of stuff. The music was, uh, you remember the theme tunes as much as the stuff on the screen. And that all kind of plays into that thing where, you know, it is a different beast. And it is, you know, if, if you're a kid, it's this really loud, brash thing. But I thought that bit, you know, looked quite good. And I think, you know, playing on the fact that this is, you know, a film adaptation of something from a comic. And I, I know, I think Spider-Man did it quite recently as well. And you know, stuff yeah. like that where, you know, they've gone into it. Clearly, someone who's done that has had a bit of thought behind them and gone, yeah, we're, we're going to do that. It works quite well. Absolutely. And the, uh, the intro, you know, the intro with um, Ming and Clytus mm. as they're kind of deciding on whether to destroy Earth or not. Um, that little bit of audio at the start, we used, uh, I used to play in a band in Glasgow. And the little bit of audio at the start, we used that. Um, for our closing song, we had this big instrumental number that we used to play. And um, sometimes we'd get the smoke machine out and get the, get the, the strobe on and stuff, you know. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. So that was the start. So we'd play that little sample and then the, the guitar player, I don't know if he was deliberately trying to kind of 
bring a bit of a Ming, the merciless type vibe into it. But he played this sort of guitar part over the top of it. And then this sort of, as the, the flash drums in the song started coming on, they're going to do, 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 do. The drummer would come in on that beat and sort of bring in this kind of beat. So yeah, for, for many, many shows, I would, we would start the show with that little bit of sound clip. Um, so again, it's sort of formed a part of my life, which I sort of couldn't get away from it in a way. You know, there's sort of, there was a three points in my life really there. So when I was young, I was a kid, I watched it. And then when I was about in my early twenties, in the sort of late nineties, I reconnected with it again. And then again, later in life, when I started to start to try and dissect it and use bits of it. I mean, you, you sent me a couple of photos quite recently where you actually went, I could, I could put this in a Hollywood way and say you visited the set. You actually were down by the, the airfield where the plane was taken off from. Well, that was, uh, yeah, it's not far from um, where I live. It's about 30 minutes drive. It's on the Isle of Skye. And it's the only location that oh, sort of location shot footage in the film. The rest of it's all done in a studio, which I guess makes it look a bit cheap compared to the likes of Star Wars, for example, which is all, you've got all this lo beautiful location stuff. But yeah, this one little scene right at the start of the film where Flash is sitting in the car and then you get the, the hot hail coming down. That was filmed on a little airstrip um, near a place called Broadford on the Isle of Skye, which is actually about 13 miles from Elandon Castle, which is where they filmed Highlander and The World Is Not Enough. Ah. So if you're ever in Scotland, don't do what they, they did in Skyfall and drive up the A9 to get to Glencoe because that's not the way to Glencoe. <laughs> um, that's the other, the other side of the country, actually. Ralph Fiennes pretends like he knows Scot the Scottish road system by saying drive up the A9, but you're like, uh, you're wrong, sorry. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so Elan Don and Castle, where they filmed Highlander, also soundtracked by Queen. Of course. And then 13 miles up the road, you've got the, the airstrip which you can't actually get to anymore. It used to be a working airstrip uh, years ago now that they shut it down. And there was a music festival, the Isle of Sky Music Festival used to be on there for, it was there for about two or three years, but it's all closed off. It's kind of closed off now. You've got to hop over a fence to actually get onto the, the runway itself. But yeah, it's quite nice just to be in a, a bit of hallowed ground, so, so to speak. I mean, it's interesting that the so when the plane takes off and there's all the turbulence and uh, they're talking about how Flash Gordon has been on vacation and it's not really explained other than he's been there and he'd been in a hotel. What, he's the quarterback for the New York Jets. I mean, do you get a lot of NFL players taking their sort of summer breaks in, up in the, that part of Scotland? I don't know. Is it really? I don't know if it's even implied that he's supposed to be in Scotland, but... I yeah. don't know. It's like, uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, as soon as he gets on the plane, he's already kind of like cracking on to, to Dale, isn't he? Saying <laughs> yeah. how he'd been sort of like perving on her the night before, <laughs> asking the maitre d' what she did and what her name was. Calm down, Flash. You've only known her for like 30 seconds. It's one of these chat-up lines. It's like, well, if we're going to die, we might as well. It's It's an interesting kind of dynamic they have and then just as as it happens because of Ming setting all these disasters off the plane crashes into um the laboratory with Topol and uh, I've just written Porkins from Star Wars and but, also the uh, top top men from Raiders of the Lost Ark <laughs> Porkins yeah 
before we kind of before we get to this point though which i should mention the a notable kind of couple of actors but um supporting actors the oh, the pilots the pilots you've got bernal tucker who's the airline pilot uh, co-pilot the old, he's actually the older of the two you think that the older pilot would be the the, the, the kind of captain i guess mm. the guy on the left is the co-pilot um and he's played by bernal tucker and he was in um a new hope he was the guy in a new hope who's in the control room at the end, who says, I picked up a new group of signals. They're heading oh, your way. Oh, okay. Him. And he's also, um, you only live twice. I think he plays a Hawaii control room technician and you only live twice as well. But oh, his... also his, co- his co-pilot, the other pilot, um, is a guy called John Morton, who appears, he's Dak in The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, he also, oh yes. Yeah. And he also plays the body of, <laughs> the body of Boba Fett in the scene when... Vader's leaving Han's torture room and he says to Boba Fett, you can take Captain Solo to Jabba the Hutt once I have Skywalker. And he does the, he's no good to me dead. So yes, that was the body, the body <laughs> of John Warren. Oh, wow. And because you've got a couple of, I mean, I, I know a lot of people here like to hear Superman references. Um, oh, oh yeah, he's in Superman he was, too. Well. He was in Superman too, And uh, Porkins was one of the evil nuclear missile salesman with Jim Broadbent in Superman 4. They're all over the place. I get the impression that all the actors at this point were all in, they were kind of all in everything, weren't they? They were in all the sort of Spielberg films. and We talked about it when, uh, going all the way back to when John Wayne was on for Superman 2, there was a a kind of cabal of, of American actors working or sort of living in sort of the south of England at the time. That's right, yeah. Who, would get jobs, you know, in especially in Star Wars, Superman, those, those kind of productions, and they all tended to pop up in, in in each other's roles. And it was strange when you see, you know, the pilots from Star Wars would pop up in Superman, and and some would be in Raiders as well. And it was just interesting that, that there was always this kind of link between those films for more reasons. And obviously, several of them would also be in Bond movies as well. So, I guess right. having that that link, you know, that, that group of people over here um, as a massive industry. I mean, you're always going to get work if you're American in London in the sort of late seventies, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, Hootkins, William Hootkins. I mean, that must have, I mean, he's from Texas, I think that guy originally, but I mean, for that, for him to make that move as an actor and think this is, this is the move I'm going to make. This might help my career. Oh boy, that was the right decision. <laughs> do, do, do you know what I mean? To do Superman and Raiders and Star Wars and Batman. Um, oh, of course, yeah. Batman 89, yeah. Um, but Hookins, yeah, he's, he's a memorable character. What can you say? I mean, even as Porkins, he's memorable. Mm. Partly even, maybe just for the reason he's called Porkins, <laughs> which is <laughs> rather unfortunate, but you never mind. Nominative determinism, I think it's called it. <laughs> and there's also a, a Robbie Coltrane there as well on the uh, on the airstrip. That's right, another Bond, another Bond reference as well. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I wonder yeah, if that was actually his hands because you see him at the on the on the runway, and then there's like a shot of um, some hands handing in a bag. I, I think is that kind of is, was that shot in a studio or was that somebody else's hands? Do you know what I mean I'm mm. not convinced that's Coltrane's hands actually? If I ever bump into him. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to ask him. I can sort of take that one off. The, the whole story about um, 
Topol. I'll often be referring to them by their actor names because I'm lazy. Um, he's a discredited scientist who's built a rocket to take off and uh, Porkins won't get in it. Um, you've got Flash and Dale because they've crashed into the lab. They get into this rocket and there's a fight and it's all amusing, th this fight going on. And this whole scene where this rocket takes off from what looks like the Palm House at Kew Gardens off into space with some of the weirdest, and again, we'll give it the benefit of the doubt, it's 1980 and some of the CGI and, and, and graphics they're using. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that this was kind of a thing at all, but um, them, them getting into the rocket, it, was, it suddenly became a little bit like Buck Rogers then, uh, which I quite enjoyed because I do like a bit of Buck Rogers. It's, it's a bit, I mean, it is a silly, it's a silly way to kind of get into the story isn't it it is ridiculous mm. I mean, they li literally they... refer to it as the imperial vortex <laughs> that's another and that's john hollis isn't it as well another guy from star wars <laughs> that says that as well isn't it robot uh, yeah, um, isn't it from empire Strikes and, Back. and fake fake blofeld fake blue that's right that's yeah. right it's just bond star wars all over the place <laughs> um, there's something that i mean the bit when um they're in space the, with the shoddy kind of rocket shot, and then it it gets a bit sexual, actually, doesn't it? I don't know if yeah. it's just me or whatever, but <laughs> um, there's something quite sexual about the shots of Flash and Dale getting kind of sweaty and so writhing about in the rocket. <laughs> and it's like something that when you watch it as a kid, you kind of just go, it sort of passes you by a little bit. But when you watch it as a 20-year-old a a revisiting it again, you sort of watch it again and you think, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you see not this subtext that makes it glorious. I'll say that. I think some of the hand holdings, you know, it's a little bit, little bit on the sort of tender side and th things like that, just little bits where, and, and again, I mean, that's a theme running throughout the film. I mean, it was a, an A, I suppose a PG got, actually got upgraded to a 12A quite recently for the, for the recent re-release. But I mean, there's enough stuff in here. I mean, some of the uh, some of the the quotes, some of the lines throughout, when you know, it really does get quite smutty. I mean, the the scene where Flash and Princess Aura in the plane, he's using telepathy to speak to Dale, and all of a sudden, oh, this girl's really turning me on. You know, you don't get that in Star Wars. Well, she's immediately kind of just trying. I mean, I mean, what is she trying to do? I mean, we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but we're kind of, mm. what is she trying to do there? She literally, she's literally trying to jump his bones there and then. Yeah. She's like, I want you. I mean, if he didn't like say, wait a minute, love. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they would, they would have been going at it. You know what I mean? She's got one thing in her mind. I'll say this, right? You could almost call this a kind of a sex comedy, a sex romp almost, because everybody apart from Topple is trying to have sex with each other. Do you know what I mean? Topol's the only one. He's like, he stays well out of it. But I, I don't know who you'd pair him up with, though, to be fair. It's, it's an interesting mix. I mean, the, the, the whole theme, it is there in the background and, and, and quite often in the foreground as well. You know, we've got the, all this stuff where some of the women are dressed in provocative ways and, and we'll touch upon later that I've just written cat fight between Dale and Aura towards the end towards the end and it is written by men for men in 1980 you know we have to kind of remind ourselves of that but um 
the decadence that goes into this when they arrive in the throne room of Ming the Merciless and all these elaborate costumes are presented and there's a bit of choreography and all the, you know, the, the sets, they're not, a lot of work has gone into them and, and a decent bit of design. And yes, it's clearly modeled on a kind of communist Russia or China of the era. Everything's red and flashes of gold and all this kind of opulent stuff. But um, you can see where some of them, well, quite a fair bit of the money's gone. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think you can, I mean, the sets are, they're not, they were not holding back there in terms of the mm. actual scale of the sets, but the costumes themselves were incredible. You know, the detail was amazing. And there's bits where I, I don't really noticed it until recently where I saw a slightly higher quality version of the film, but there's a bit where um, Flash is wearing this kind of, he's in disguise apparently with, with this red jacket on. And it looks like it's an actual leather jacket. I mean, I just, I don't know, just, you just look at it and think that must have cost, do you know I mean, three or four hundred, six, maybe a grand to make something like that. I mean, you mm. can't buy something like that for three or four hundred pounds, but if someone's hand making it and hand stitching every single element and decorative element on that jacket, then you can sort of see where the money's gone, as you say, you know. Um, yeah. You know. Well, let's say that, as you said, the, the costumes, I mean, there's, there's a lot of the masks that are used that are they're gold coloured. They're they're real. They're not just a kind of a template. A lot of them look like they're individually decorated in some way, not just colours, but motifs and designs. And and I mean, some of them look absolutely ridiculous. I mean, like the lizard men ones, and and some of them do look like they were done in a sort of local theatre production. And, and some of the acting and choreography does as well, but the fact that the budget was so big, you can see where it went. And I think there's a lot of extras, a lot of character actors. I mean, there's Kenny Baker playing a dwarf in the background as well. Like just, just to chuck that one in. in. That is where you can see, you know, someone's had these grand ideas and no matter how the rest of the film or the script or the effects have turned out, you know, you look at this and you think, wow, that must've been a, you know, experience just even being on that set, let alone watching it now. Absolutely. I mean, it does look, I mean, the, the production designer, um, Danilo Donati, he did everything, didn't he? He did the sets and the costumes and the whole shebang. Whereas on something like, say, Star Wars, you've got a, a group of designers all designing different characters and costumes and production designers doing just ship designs or doing set designs. Whereas Flash has a very singular vision in a way you know you can see it in every single frame of the film but that's where the money's gone i think the production design is clearly where they spent all the cash because there's not any there's no real big names in terms of actors i mean max von Sydow maybe he's possibly the the most well-known actor in the film i think i think that there is a, an element of where you know we we look back now and you think like timothy dalton went on to do James Bond and um, Brian Blessed has become a cult person. You know, people know him for being Brian Blessed rather than necessarily many of the roles he did and of, of the ones he did, you know, this is probably one of his most famous. And there are a lot of actors within here who have, you know, people know from other films, you know, even in this scene where the, the guy, where Ming demands, he throws himself on his sword and says, death to Ming, you know, he was yeah. in... 
George Harris, he was in Raiders of the Lost Ark and right. um, Layer Cake and, and things like that. So, you know, there's all guys with, with good, respectable CVs. I think it's just, uh, you know, the, there's a few other, other issues there. But I think that scene, the real scale of it and, you know, that there is Max von Sydow coming out. You know, he does, and we talked about this on, on a couple of the episodes when he was in Never Say Never Again. He was also the kind of, uh, I think we joked about this, the lovable Nazi in Escape to Victory, where, you know, he's, oh, he's not that bad. He's still a Nazi. Um, you know, he, he seems to revel in, in these bad guy roles. I mean, he really hammed it up. And, and even now we're at the point where when the film was reclassified, it was basically, they, they said that his depiction of Ming was borderline offensive because he's a Swedish actor playing someone who's clearly when he was drawn and, and everything it was done as, as someone from an Asian background. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, in the, you know, of course it's 2021 and, and we now look at things like that, whereas in, back then it wasn't done and, and it wasn't an issue then because times have changed, but it's still, he was playing a villain who loved it. And that's kind of what you want. You know, you know, this isn't a film, like you've said, where you play an understated thing. You've got, Timothy Dalton thinking he's in Shakespeare, you've got a villain who needs to be top, top, absolutely chewing the scenery, which he does. Oh, he's fantastic. He's fantastic. One of my favourite moments, um, jumping ahead again, is um, when um, he pops up during his daughter's torture scene and basically just kind of says, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> it's just, it's just fantastic. He's yeah. Sidow is fantastic for this role. Yeah. There's not a moment in it where he is not committed, fully committed to it, but it's fantastic stuff. And this is the fun bit as well, where, where everything works as a kind of ridiculous level, but also with the music and with the set where it's uh, flash Gordon, yeah, introduces himself as the quarterback of the New York Jets and Ming has this kind of, I don't know, hypnol ring I've written where he basically puts a spell on Dale and, and she starts, I mean, Flash, even Flash is a little bit aroused by her kind of... Well, well everybody's aroused, aren't they? Well, Everybody. On the whole it, film. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is, um, I mean, he's publicly molesting Dale, is he not? Mm. It's pretty much. I mean, it's, it, yeah, I mean, this is, it's slightly dodgy. I mean, by today's standards, <laughs> but um, it's a funny thing, isn't it? And then you've got Clytus, or Ming says, how oh, he says, um, have you ever seen such a response? And then you've got Clytus <laughs> going, no, truly. She even rivals your daughter. And you're like, what? 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 So you, you're talking, <laughs> you're talking about his daughter. <laughs> Do you know I mean, because then it cuts to a shot of aura. She's looking on, and she's looking like she's a bit turned on by what she's seen as well. Is that what I am I reading that wrong? But it's sort of like she's looking, she sort of like sort of has a wee look, and you're like, why did they cut to her? Yeah. <laughs> Unless they're trying to show that somehow she's getting a kick out of it. But Clytus is obviously getting a kick out of it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Everyone's even Flash. Because <laughs> he, he says, because Dale comes to you and she goes, what happened to me? And Flash goes, I don't know, but it was pretty sensational. <laughs> it's like, right? Okay. He should, he should be mopping his brow or something like that. I like the bit where it's the kind of um, 
Uh, do you remember kids in the hall where they do the "I'm crushing your head"? <laughs> yeah, the Ming does. That, Ming does that to to Dale, doesn't he? So it would only work on, on the context of you if you're looking at it from that angle. But Ming's doing it with his fingers. He's like caressing her body with his fingers in a sort of "I'm crushing your head" sort of type way. <laughs> it's a cinematic thing. It wouldn't work if you're looking at it from the other side. You'd be like, "What is he doing with his hand? I don't understand what he's doing there." It's it's just such a sexually charged film in general. Um, Ridiculous. And... It's dripping with sex, Rich, I think you have to say. It's just <laughs> everyone yeah. is trying to get it on. Do you know what I mean? Imagine being on that set. I mean, there weren't many women, but um, yeah. Just to put things sort of in perspective, you know I mean, like Ming himself, obviously, he's a bit of a sex machine, isn't he? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Fully functioning harem. You know what I mean? Going on. You know what I mean, his right hand man, an enforcer, Clytus, openly. <laughs> talks with Ming about how much he gets hot under the mask for Aura, doesn't he? Yeah. But while at the same time, it seems like he's having a fling with the security officer, Kala. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And then you've got Aura, she's shagging Prince Baron. And within what seems like maybe an hour after reanimating Flash's corpse against her father's will, she's like getting the help from the, the Imperial surgeon who she's obviously over, also shagging as well, and her dad knows about. How many people are trying to get off with each other here? It's just ridiculous. And you don't notice this stuff as a kid, but when you rewatch it later as an adult, you just think, it's the only thing I can focus on, you know? Is this what people in that day had instead of Love Island at Flash Gordon? It was um, just people drip, dripping in costumes trying to get off with each other. It's like Carry on Flash Gordon, isn't it? Essentially. <laughs> I'd imagine if Kenneth Williams had been um, in there somewhere as well. I'll tell you, if you threw Kenneth Williams in there, you wouldn't blink an eye, would you? In fact, Kenneth <laughs> no. Williams is Clytus. Imagine that. <laughs> that would have been, <laughs> been amazing. Just that slight change of voice and all, all of a sudden. <laughs> and this just an, uh, the next part with the, the American football scene where they've got these eggs and, and he suddenly becomes his, his American football flash sort of flashback and I mean you, everyone's enjoying themselves because the scene where Brian Blessed twats the fellow on the head twice and just has this look of fuck it why not it, it, just everything about it is just so ludicrous it's like something out of Greece too or something where everyone's just yeah, no one's taken themselves too seriously. The music worked perfectly. The that particular song on the soundtrack, oh, it's amazing! Just well, the brilliant. That one's written by Freddie Mercury. That tune, I think. And there's mm. a version that came out in 2011, a kind of demo version of that track, um, which doesn't use the synth. It's got like this sort of synth lead part on that track. But on the demo, it's just played on the piano. And I'll tell you, it sounds like Chaz and Dave. <laughs> You'll have to listen to it at some point. It sounds like Chaz and Dave. Search it out. It's called um, Football Fight No Synths. So search it on YouTube and it's it's Chaz and Dave. Oh, I think that, that, that's on Spotify, actually. Is it? I'll, um, yeah, I'll have to dig that one out. Worth checking out. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, does a, do you think a scene like that deflates the mood or do you think it, it improves the film at that point? Do you think? I, I think at that point, we're already invested in the avenue that this film is going down. I mean, I feel sorry for anyone who sits down and they've got to this point. I mean, we're probably, what, half an hour in? And they're sitting there going, 
expecting some kind of serious, something like Solaris or something, exploration of the human psyche in space. And all of a sudden you've got a really bad actor with an Easter egg knocking people over and then Brian blessed Twatnam on the head. It's, um, I mean, it's ludicrous in the most wonderful way. And I think I, I'm fully invested, quite frankly. Oh, yeah. Well, you, kind of, you have to be, you have to go all in with this film. I mean, I think, as you say, though, that the, the Queen thing, it's a Marmite issue. Yeah. My mm. wife, for example, really doesn't like Queen, not a fan. So I think she finds it very difficult to watch this film. In fact, when I was watching this film as research, she was like, why are you watching this? <laughs> and I was like, it's a good question, but I don't have time to go into it just now. You'll have to listen to the podcast when it comes out. <laughs> but, um, it's, what, I mean, what can you say? I mean, it's like, um, it's, it's a very rude film. It's very rude. It's very colourful. And you have to be in it to win it. I think now it's the sort of film where it is like in, you get in the superhero kind of things where it has that, you know, it would be more like a Deadpool thing where you'd have to have someone playing it with that kind of knowing wink throughout it'd have to be like a Ryan Reynolds type character in the lead role because you can't have someone I suppose now it'd be The Rock or something like that but it's um got to play this if it's written like this and presented like this as a comedy of sorts because otherwise it's not going to work and I think that there's too much there you know I mean the next scene where he's in jail chained up I mean the the acting there it's like watching Remember in, in Friends and Joey was doing the stuff on daytime TV. It was that bad. The acting, the, the interplay between Sam Jones and, and Dale. I mean, it's just an excuse for him to get his top off and be all oiled up. You don't mind it. And I know I, I clearly don't have standards. I mean, I, I'm in a WhatsApp group of people who like good films and write about good films and I, I feel well out of place. What, well what do you mean good films, Rich? Are you trying to say that what we're talking about is not, I mean, come Wait, on. How can come I put it? Critically acclaimed films. Highbrow films. Yes. Highbrow films, yeah. I, I feel well out of place though, not proper <laughs> imposter syndrome because I sat there watching Flash Gordon and, you know, they said, what, what film are you looking forward to this year? And I said, Top Gun 2. I was like, what? But, you know, this is just so amazing that that this can get you know 41 years later we're sitting here talking about it watching it loving it because it is so completely mad um you know and even then you know the the princess is begging ming to let him live you know because she basically wants him as a glorified sex doll yeah i mean you don't you don't get that i think this moment as well i mean uh, there's other parts of the theme that i'd like to kind of talk about in terms of the soundtrack but Mm. There's a couple of moments here on the soundtrack. They're called um, In the Death Cell. And it's written by Roger Taylor and then The Execution of Flash by John Deacon. These little bits of music, they're quite low key and quite kind of dreamy in their sort of execution. But what I would say is that they're worth paying attention to and listen to in isolation because I think the ridiculousness of this film in many ways kind of your eye is distracted and you're distracted by what's happening visually. but you're not paying attention to the music necessarily, but if you listen to the soundtrack on its own, it's fantastic. It really is some brilliant soundtrack music here. Some of the best, but go back and listen to it. It seems like one of those soundtracks again. I mean, I, I 
I'm trying to convince myself that I should get into back into vinyl. And it seems like one of those soundtracks that I should buy on vinyl. I, I'm not really sure why that kind of jumps out at me. Maybe, you know, it's one of those things where vinyl, you often buy as much for the cover art and the, and the album sleeve as you do for the album. But And maybe those work together well. But it just seems like that is one of those you know, almost like archetypal albums that you buy on vinyl. But um, it's, um, I mean, Spotify is not quite the same, is it? Another part of the soundtrack for this section as well is the fact that the soundtrack of the film actually integrates into what's happening within the film itself. Quite of unusual in a way, but the fact that you've got the score and then you've got this kind of beat happening during the execution scene, and there's these kind of drummers dressed in red and they're drumming, but they're drumming along with the score as well, you know? So it's all kind of intermingled. Do you know what I mean? So it's not just laid on top, it's actually part of the film part of the actual fabric of the film well as you say i mean that's that's where queen have this kind of power i mean queen are massive at this point anyway but you know they're, they're you can imagine they're sitting there going well if we're going to do it we're going to do it properly and either the film's edited around the music or they're sitting there tailoring the music to fit the film although i think in some of the the clips of the music and this is becoming more about the album than the film but um i think they use the Sam Jones sort of original dialogue, not not the dubbed one. So you wonder how sort of far down the line that went. But um, I mean, yeah. I think as as a kind of you know, you don't get it that often these days. I mean, you kind of remember when you know this and Highlander. I remember Young Guns too had this whole thing because Bon Jovi did the whole soundtrack for that. And you don't, you know, like it becomes a, like an extra album if you're a big fan of a band. You know, especially if you are, you know, Queen in 1980 or Bon Jovi in 91, 92, you know, that, that's, that's a brilliant kind of thing if you're that fan. And if you're a Queen fan, you see this, you see Highlander. And it just seems like something I, I'm, I don't think you really get that, that often anymore. I mean, the only problem is you'd probably get Ed Sheeran doing like a Marvel film or something and it would just be fucking horrendous. Yeah, but you, there's not so many kind of films where it's a singular vision, where it's like yeah. one band that are just doing the whole thing. It's fairly unusual, I would say. A lot yeah. of the, the main, the, the kind of the, the thing with soundtracks these days is the kind of, it's like the compilation soundtrack, isn't it? Where they just throw on a bunch of tracks because um, Scorsese popularized the, the thing of just throwing in music tracks and then Tarantino started doing it. And then everyone started copying him. And, and now it's just, and then James Gunn kind of resurrected the whole thing and reinvented it again with Guardians of the Galaxy. But that kind of idea of just having, just slapping tracks onto a film that don't necessarily have any context in terms of the actual song, but they just sound good. Yeah. Whereas this is a completely different thing. I mean, this is the band that have written something specific to the images that they're seeing on the screen. And I just think it gives it a different quality. And Such a rare treat. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The soundtrack, yeah. I mean, it's funny to think about the the music as well and thinking about, I don't know, for many people of our age as well, one of the, the albums which we would have heard a lot maybe at the time, well, I did anyway, was um, Queen's Greatest Hits, one. Yeah. The first yeah. one, right? Which they put off, didn't they? They put off releasing until, because they were doing the Flash soundtrack, they put off doing, releasing their Greatest Hits. I, and I heard that I heard the Flash song many times from listening to that album but funnily enough that album is the greatest selling album 
in the UK ever, which says a lot about where they were at that point and how amazing it was that the film couldn't capitalise on that in a way. We're spending so much time talking about that and not the film. Not the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing. It's like, uh, if, any, if, if I want anybody to come away with anything from this podcast, is that go and listen to the soundtrack in isolation and try and separate yourself from the visuals. I mean, difficult, but I think it will give you a real different appreciation, hopefully an increased appreciation of the soundtrack, which is bloody brilliant in my mind. I mean, I, I had the, the film on today. I mean, I, sometimes I kind of forget I've got a surround sound system, um, which I don't often use. I just watch stuff through the telly, but I actually put it on for this because of the soundtrack. You kind of make a point of thinking, I did it last week, I watched Bullet, and I had the soundtrack for that on, you know, yeah. the, the soundbar. And you think, and maybe I need to do it more. So sometimes I can only do it during the day because if I do it at night, it wakes the whole street up. But, you know, what that, that soundtrack was just so fill in the house you know like you say with those drums and and everything that that works so nicely throughout and it is just such a treat i'm gonna to have to listen to it again i mean I, I did that when the last episode was um about purple rain and i kind of went away and listened to the purple rain album many numerous times and this is another one is almost like i might as well do a podcast about movie soundtracks <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if so i wonder if anyone does that no, I, I wonder, but yeah, certainly worth doing. That's for sure. Um, yeah, but there's. Um, I thought it was interesting that um, the Beatles get a reference in this film as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> By um, we're just going to call him Topol, I think. Yeah. 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 Call him. Uh, the the scene actually with Topol when you see his, um, they're trying to erase his mind, reminded me a little bit of Goldfinger. To be honest. Mm, yeah. I know. I don't know if it was a intended as a reference or whether it's something that's straight lifted from the comics which i've not read by the way i've not read the comics and i've not watched the buster crab like not original much. so <laughs> the original sort of films as well um i came straight in cold with flash gordon in 1980 well a few years later on bmx but but yeah very goldfinger moment yeah with a strapped to a strapped to a table with a device which is in, intended to emasculate our hero in which game, Bond's case, it's his, it's his knackers that they're trying to remove. And, and with Zarkov, it's his, his mind he's been trying to fill for his entire life. That, that was a whole interesting thing. I, I do find it strange when it's almost like there was a scene where they, because it flashes through his memories and takes him, it's like Benjamin Button takes him all the way back to being in the womb. And so all these things about how it doesn't just become his memories, it also becomes bad shit that happened on planet earth because yeah. then they have i mean it, it, you have about half a second to hitler and then you've got is it clyter saying oh he showed promise he showed promise yeah and and you know all these weird things where you just think like just in case you forgot that these are the villains they also have to praise hitler i know it's like yeah little moments like that that can uh that you can maybe skip over, but just to kind of like just to kind of break the tension, um, obviously it goes back far enough that you can hear Topol's parents having sex, obviously because <laughs> you know it is a, a very sexy movie. This is like, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't not necessarily what you want to hear, is it? I mean, if you if you're hearing the sound of your own parents going at it, every teenager's worst nightmare. <laughs> But yeah, but yeah, but it's good. But it's a lovely moment when later he drops in the fact that the way that he managed to avoid his mind 
been sucked dry of all the memories that he's been trying to and fill up with his, his whole life. He, was, he thought about Paul McCartney and, and John Lennon and Ringo Starr and George Harrison at that point. And it armoured him, apparently. It's, um, I suppose that's kind of the kind of thing where that's his cultural base. It's like, you can take my knowledge, but you can't take my, you know, love of, I don't know, Queen's Greatest Hits 1 or that, that sort of thing where, you know, you, you'll never take my freedom, you know, you can't take my mind and all this stuff. And it turns out he's just bullshitting all along anyway and he's just a really, really good actor. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the, whole, the whole idea of, of him being, becoming an agent of Ming, it's, um, I mean, it's an interesting theory, I suppose. It doesn't last very long. If it was a TV show and it was like spanned out, over, if it was over like a ten episode sort of sort of story, maybe you could have sort of spun that out for a few episodes. You know, I mean that he really was an agent of Ming. Mm, it turns yeah. out he wasn't, but you know, it seems to last literally seconds, and then he's like, "No, no, it's fine." Yeah, my love of the Beatles has saved me. I quite like Yellow Submarine, therefore I'm good again. <laughs> but as as this is happening, he's helping. Um, well, we see later, you know, he helps Dale escape because she's, again, another kind of, she has to drink a green drink to enjoy sleeping with Ming. It's um, it's almost like he relies on chemicals. Well, it, not, uh, well, on both sides as well, doesn't he, really? Not only is he getting his women to kind of take a kind of a super strength aphrodisiac, he's, a, he's effectively taking some, getting some help himself, isn't he? Yeah, is that some power potion or something? Power potion, it? yeah. Power <laughs> potion, yeah. Exactly what the power potion does, I'm not exactly sure, but... It comes you know, in a yeah. blue pill. You have to use your imagination for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is filth, yeah. I mean, and certainly um, we've got the moment where Dale and Flash are going to Arborea and yet more filth ensues, you know. They, they, they arrive at a place, they arrive on Arborea. It is it's filth. So, so it's, it's the only thing you can really say. They arrive at a place, right, in the middle of an, an initiation ceremony. I'm sorry, but it sounds quite rude to my ears. It sounds like a bunch of blokes basically coming to orgasm. I mean, as they beat their poles in earnest. I mean, it's the only way I can really describe it. It's just like, it's like, it sounds like they're all having sex. And then it gets a bit closer and you can actually see them. And they're all there with these big poles bashing the ground, you know what I mean? Being in a common room at Eton. What is going on here? But, you know, Aura's loving it. She's loving it. Well, yeah, because she was going to take Flash to her, I've written down, secret pleasure moon. Sounds like a a cabin at Butlins. A Um, pleasure moon, like a whole moon devoted to to sexual pleasure. This is a kid's film, by the way, Rich. Yeah, yeah. So if you were expecting Ewoks, you're going to be sadly mistaken. I love the way that Aura says she loves initiations. She loves initiations. She does. For goodness sake, Aura, stop it. All right. I mean, her, the way she, I mean, she, she, I think at one point says it was just after she resurrected Flash after he died in the gas chamber. And she just kept saying over again, I like you a lot. It's just the, the way she was kind of lusting over him. Well, he um, was wearing probably the best pair of space pants ever, ever created. Don't get them, don't get them from MS. Like, yeah. Come on, come on. I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, he, he did look good in them, fair enough. You know what I mean? Due yeah. credit to, to Sam Jones. 
Who needs mystery green drink when you've got super space pants? Space pants, yeah. That's all you need. This initiation, and it is like a, I say like a game of soggy biscuit or something, but it's um, it's really like a Russian roulette. You've got to put your arm into a trunk that has a monster in it that's going to bite you on the hand. On the hand, I mean, it's very interesting kind of theory. I mean, again, you know, Timothy Dalton is standing there watching this boy shove his hand into a tree trunk and then because he's been bitten he essentially begs to die and Dalton stabs him again I don't know I've not been initiated into any gangs or anything like that so I don't know if that's really the done thing where there's such an overwhelming risk of death (laughs) well it's yeah I mean it's supposed to be a test of manhood isn't it essentially Mm. but it seems like more of a, a roll of the dice in terms yeah. of your mortality. I mean, I think it's pretty cold how quickly Prince Baron moves on emotionally after the sort of the sacrifice of uh, Peter Duncan, the killing of Peter Duncan, to then <laughs> Aura turns up and he's literally shouting, prepare a feast. Goodness sake. This is a guy that you've probably lived with for the last 18 years. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that Mongo years are the same as... Uh, we have on earth but yeah i mean he's known this man boy into manhood yeah comes the day he makes one mistake by putting his hand down the wrong hole we've and, all been uh, there game over yeah. game over and it's this like he's like oh well he's dead prepare a feast i mean he's on the sides here <laughs> he's literally groomed this boy probably <laughs> and again i mean it's literally russian roulette i mean there's probably six holes in this tree trunk as well Mm. you know and after this whole issue with the um dalton has to do it with with flash the beast lies somewhere in the stump choose a passage no way who's the man you know we're, we're gonna play this game and flash gordon does it and then of course when he does it he i mean it's i mean watching it now maybe it's because i've seen the film before but it's like oh come on because there's a couple of shots where you see this little rat, whatever it is, under some leaves. And then the time that Flash Gordon does it, you know, we don't see anything. You just really badly film bit of footage. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, no, I've been bitten honest. I mean, you can see that trick coming from a mile off. Death is certain, but only after tortured madness. How long? Hours, days, depending on your strength. Please, end it now. Tricked you, Baron! Back off! One move and you're looking for a new prince. Is it just me, but I'm, I'm sort of, with that particular set, I was getting real Dagobah vibes also but it's like a cross between Dagobah and the Ewok village Ewoks. yeah <laughs> I've, got, the I've, Jedi. I've, I've got Ewok tree houses written down there but funnily mm. enough predates the Ewok village from yes. the Jedi well mm. at the same time must have been filmed either I don't know what the chronology is, is exactly but definitely Dagobah vibes but Empire and Flash came out very, very I, soon I, after each other I mean, so yeah. it's like, I wonder if Someone was saying, by the way, see for the new Star Wars film. 
they've done this amazing set. It's like this amazing tree trunk set. You know what I mean? It's smoke and the, you know what I mean? It's fantastic. You think, well, maybe we should get in on that. Let's let's pop into their swamp set when they've gone off to the pub on a Friday night. Yeah, I've always wondered that. I've always wondered if there's an actual connection of if someone was blabbing or you kind of think about these films and, and again, you know, this isn't a kind of deep impact Armageddon thing, you know, the, this isn't a race to get made first or anything, but you do think, you know, sometimes these coincidences, you know, maybe they just are coincidences, but, um, you know, without reading the comics or any of that sort of stuff, I don't really know what the, what the background to this kind of stuff is, but it is, it's very close. You know, some of the stuff in, in Empire Strikes Back and this, you know, coming out must be within months, if not weeks, of each other. Um, so you'd assume there wasn't any crossover, but who knows? It's Hollywood and people do dirty tricks and spy on each other. It's wrong. Can I just point uh, out as well that the, the lizard men in this film, they're always seeming, they're seemingly getting the shit end of the stick. They're yeah. A lower class of citizen on Mongo, but they're, they're either getting zapped and sort of disintegrated or they're being lowered into a swamp. Not a good state of play for the, the old uh, lizard man. They are a persecuted people, aren't they? They are, yeah. yeah. They rise up against Ming eventually. One thing we did skip over, and, and this is one of the iconic lines, is that when Dale and Topol have made their way over to Brian Blessed's palace, which looks a bit like Bespin, let's be it honest. Does. Um, it does. <laughs> and uh, the feast that he has, which I read on IMDb, are mostly Twinkies dyed green. <laughs> No expense spared. Oh, no. <laughs> 27 million. There you go. There's a Twinkie. Some food colouring. To be fair, if this was made in England and they're using Twinkies, they've done well in 1980 to get Twinkies over here. I mean, you, I mean, now you can buy them in any Tesco or Sainsbury's, but I guess in 1980, they're a bit harder to come by. Yeah, this is where, because everyone assumes that Flash Gordon was, was killed in the gas chamber by Ming, and uh, it's, to, his, uh, to Brian Blessed's almighty surprise, Flash Gordon... Is alive. He's actually alive. Yeah, he's not dead. He is alive. Ming's not unbeatable. With all his men, he couldn't even kill Flash. Gordon's alive. He's in our boyer. Prince Baron is aiding him. Baron. I tell you, now is the time to strike. Oh, only Brian Blessed. Poor Brian, Blessed. Brian Blessed. He's gonna. Yeah. He's only gonna have to say that for the rest of his life. <laughs> but, but he strikes know. me as the sort of person who'll enjoy that. He loves it. He loves it. Yeah. He loves it. He'll do it at conventions for 50 quid a pop when we're allowed oh. to do those again. He'll do it down your uh, your voicemail, I'm sure. What's that cameo thing that celebrities do? You know, just raise a few quid. You pay £25 and he'll make a five-second voice video of your name is alive. <laughs> Sorry, is that something that Brian Blessed does? If, if so, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if he does, but it's, it's something that celebrities have seem to have done over the, the pandemic era is uh, probably before to be fair where you can pay them I mean fucking Nigel Farage does it you pay them like 50 quid or whatever and they'll record you a video message and it's everything from I mean, Steve Gutenberg does it Nigel Farage does it everything in between and you must imagine Brian Blessed seems like the sort of person who'd do that I think it's basically like the, the alternative to to what they used to do at the conventions where you know charge people 40 quid for a photo or something like that i don't know i've never been i quite fancy getting um, brian blessed doing my my answering machine message actually <laughs> i'll get on to that i'll get on to yeah we'll, we'll look into it if i can find a link i'll stick it in the show notes um so then um 
after the Russian roulette with uh, Dalton and, and Flash Gordon, Flash Gordon escapes into the swamp where he gets swallowed by a giant bouncy castle spider, um, which is literally a balloon. And it's also ADR'd by a man that's grunting too close to a microphone, essentially. <laughs> it's just, just no effort to try and make a decent creature sound. Just like, Oi, Jim, can you, uh, can you do a bit of grunting in this microphone? He's just like, <laughs> just like what? Really? It doesn't sound like they made any effort. You mean, where, where on the other hand, I mean, you've got Ben Burt you mean, in his studio coming up with all these amazing sounds and doing all this stuff. You know what I mean? But no. Confessions of an interplanetary door-to-door <laughs> window cleaner. But yeah, it's, it does look a bit hammy when he's attacked by that, essentially a, a giant green balloon that, 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 that sort of blows up around him. And then, although just but the moments just before that, there's a brilliant shot where Flash is kind of in the quick, the sort of in this like swampy, quicksandies type stuff. And there's this like really beautiful shot of his hair. It's like this one little lock of his hair, just kind of just the last thing that you see before he disappears underneath. It's just a lovely shot. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, no expense, bad. So then they go off to, because they decide to team up, because, of course, on this planet, no one teams up. Ming's idea of rule is kind of a divide and rule thing where you, if everyone's fighting with each other, they're not going to fight him, which is kind of logical when you think about it. Yeah. So Flash has convinced Timothy Dalton to team up with Brian Blessed. Sounds like something out of Celebrity. It's a knockout. Um so they go over to the, the Palace of the Green Twinkies and they have trial by combat, Absolutely. which is just magnificent. Well, I mean, I love, um, it's again, another moment with, with Dalton, um, a bit like the um, moment in Living Daylights where he starts quoting, he starts quoting chapter and verse to Saunders. James Bond. Later, General. Lose them. I'll pick you up at the border, 2300 hours, be there. Where are you taking him? How will you get him out? Sorry, old man. Section 26, paragraph 5. Need to know. Sure you understand. Section 26, um, paragraph 5. Yeah. So he starts to, He starts quoting a bit of uh, chapter and verse again here, doesn't he? He's like, Article 17 of Ming's Law. No prince of Mongo taken captive shall be offered for ransom without first being given the right of trial by combat. Mm. So he knows he's stuffed, doesn't he? He knows, he, he knows, he knows that he's ever, like, trapped in a corner he can just whip out this article and it'll save the, save the day. He's like those dickheads who won't wear a mask and start waving the Magna Carta around. <laughs> and the, the ironic thing is, is that, of course, we're in Brian Bess's boat and had the Twinkies. This is quite literally cake or death. We've got trial by combat and we're thinking about this wonderful set because Dalton wants to fight Flash to the death. It's this spinning table with spikes and a remote control and a couple of whips. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I can't make it sound much better than that. And the way it's filmed, the way, I mean, it goes on a little bit, I think in all fairness, but um, I think there's enough comedy in there. There's enough action. Some of the fighting is okay, I guess. It's fine. But I think, I mean, talking about budget, there's a lot of money being spent on the sets and, costumes and whatnot but i think in some part that the one area that lets it down this film is the the tech i think yeah because what brian blessed looks like he's holding he looks like he's literally holding like a simon says 
to kind of control <laughs> to control that that um, that disc. It just looks so shoddy. All the the equipment, like the um, we'll get to it, but the 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 rocket cycle, it just looks shoddy. It doesn't look like it's well made. It looks no. like it's been slapped together really quickly. Whereas then you've got costumes that look like they've they've had weeks and weeks and weeks of people sewing sequins into place and making it perfect. But there's yeah little bits like this and 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 I, I hadn't noticed actually, but I, I've done a bit of IMDb research and there was people saying that there's um some of the spikes are rubber and they kind of move about and I hadn't oh, noticed that at all. I mean, no, nah. I'm invested in Dalton at that point. Yeah, I mean, as, as Bond fans, obviously we're, we're we're interested from that point of view. But the fact that um, we have this fight and uh, Flash shows his humanity, it's essentially like the bit in you know these old sort of gladiator type films where the Emperor has his thumb up and thumb down. Um, Dalton's hanging off the end, hanging on to one of these rubber spikes, um, and Flash saves him, and all of a sudden, this this whole concept seems completely alien to to Brian Blessed. I mean, bear in mind, I think, wasn't there a story that he once bit through a woman's placenta or something after she'd given birth? So, I mean, he's not one to talk, but it's, um, I mean, and, and to be fair, he doesn't talk, does he? He just yells. Um, and then this is where we have, I think it's the first uttering of Bastard. Bastard, yeah. Dawn. yeah. No one says Bastard better than Dalton, does he? No. Brute, give me that. Bastard. Bastard. And he follows it up with a, a better one later on. Oh, he does, yeah. He does. Yeah. And he also, but he, he's, he's in License to Kill. Again, one of my favourite Dalton moments in that, in that is the, uh, the watch the birdie moment. Yeah. Well, which again, he utters <laughs> the same word, but yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. But then you've got Clytus. He suddenly turns up, doesn't he? Mm, and sort of ruins yeah. the party a little bit, doesn't he? You know, no one's having it though, are they? They're not, they're not having it. Dalton has been convinced by this point to basically finish him off, which he does quite quickly, actually. And then he sort of, it's like he kind of just melts <laughs> Clytus. Oh, that was weird, wasn't it? Because his eyes pop out and yeah. like an insect. But um, there's, a, there's a good Clytus moment when he's talking about, um, he's talking about uh, Aura. And he's talking, he's referencing, he's talking, he's trying to wind up Dalton, isn't he? At that point, he's going, he's yeah. saying, interesting girl. He's talking about her torture scene, which we skipped over, by the way. The torture scene, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, maybe we shouldn't talk about it anyway. <laughs> to be honest. But, but there's um, Clytus references a torture scene. And um, he says, interesting girl. I think she found it rather enjoyable. He's so, fucking yeah. filthy, mate. <laughs> yes, he's filthy, isn't he? It's like, <laughs> basically, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a, an S&M torture scene. Your lover, Barin, is harboring Gordon in a boria, is he not? No! This lying is such a waste of time! You left with a pilot and returned alone. Wasn't he Gordon in disguise? No! Kids film, by the way. <laughs> and he's banging on about this, this moment he's had with Aura, trying to wind up Dalton. And it just, it basically tips Dalton off the edge, doesn't it? That's the moment where he's like, that's it. I've had enough of this, you bastard. I mean, go back to that torture scene because now, you, again, you've piqued my interest. I mean, that that whole thing, you know, basically Aura is being pinned down to this table using hands as a restraint, and I'm surprised they weren't real hands. 
who are kind of like a hand like you get on a statue and the fact that she's face down wearing the tightest it's ugh. it's the the angle that it's shot from as well yeah from, and yeah and <laughs> it's the moment when Kala is whipping her and she's obviously getting off on it a little bit i don't know if, oh yeah if oh yeah she must do everybody else is so and <laughs> it's a bit weird she's like she's trying to give her another whip and Clytus kind of stops her and it's, it's it's very pantomime but at the same time you're like this is this is very sexual and i again it passed me by as a child as it would do mm. i mean but when you watch it as a as a, a young as a 21 year old you sort of watch it and you go what, what am I watching here? <laughs> I think it's in, it's interesting when, like you know, we talked about this. Kids don't notice this stuff, and yet you know the the. And I'm not going to go into whole censorship thing or anything, but you know, there's such a drive to keep this stuff out of out of children's reach. Kids don't know what's going on. Kids don't care. It's the 14, 15 year olds watching this going, "Oh no, what's going to come out next?" You know, but um. But yes, it was. It was. A, it's a memorable scene. Um, yeah, for a, a number of reasons. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I can't say that. I'm. I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan. Who's not a fan of Aura in this film? But she's got Great. some. She's got some amazing costumes. Yes, no expense spared again. <laughs> now, as um, the hawks fly off from uh, Brian Bess's palace, Ming arrives and offers Flash Gordon a ki- uh, his own kingdom within the planet because he kind of recognises his um, he's got something about him. This is kind of a, I suppose, as much of an olive branch as a evil villain would offer you. Join, join the dark side almost. But um, as, the, uh, as the, the palace is broken up, he drops down into this, I've written escape jet ski, like an escape pod, but what was it they called it? A um, rocket, ro- rocket cycle. Rocket cycle, that was it, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And then we just get the most wonderful scenes of him flying this thing in glorious Technicolor CGI blue screen. Yet again, though, it's a, another, another moment in the film which reminds me of The Empire Strikes Back. The bit yeah. where Luke mm-hmm. in Cloud City, when he falls down the hole and he sort of slides down that little tube thing, something about it that reminds <laughs> me of The Empire Strikes Back. And I, I, I just I can't help but think that it's more than just a coincidence that there's many Empire Strikes Back moments in this film. Either that or they were just on the same page, but I don't know. That's the thing, is that now we're probably looking for this stuff, but there's definitely some things here that are, there's obviously some crossover. The way the way he just drops in and, and that at least he's got both his hands with him at the same time. But as we're back in the Palace of Ming or whatever, this just sounds weird saying it, um, this is the bit I referred to earlier, the cat fight between Dale and Aura. As, um, so Dale is sentenced to marry Ming and Aura is now sort of fully aware of the plan, sort of basically overthrow Ming because now she, because she's been tortured and he, because he sat there eating a bag of crisps or whatever, watching it going, oh, I don't give a shit. Um, she's dealing with the boar worms, obviously. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, is, is that like crabs or whatever? Don't know. So the, and then they have this fight on this enormous bed, and then the lackeys, the kind of handmaidens, are all sitting there sniggering, watching, going. And I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember at what point the fight ended. And I'm not going to lie, I was slightly disappointed it ended as soon as it did. <laughs> why? Why was that, Rich? 
why are we, we disappointed? I love the line though, Dale's line, you damned Mongo person. <laughs> couldn't, like, say, couldn't say that anymore. Hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a good scene, but I, I, can't, I can't help but feel that we're watching it and enjoying it for the, the wrong reasons. Yeah. Or the right definitely. reasons. Who knows? <laughs> Depending on how we're, you want to look. There's a teenage boy inside all of us. Oh, Absolutely. Wait, Absolutely. But then mm. it's like, this is the bit where basically Aura's telling Dale that Ming always takes his power potion, his, his Mongo Viagra, basically. Revealing that kind of secret about her dad. It's a, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a, a sort of a slip in, the, in the, sort of the trust, I would say. But then she does lay on like a, a tough one, doesn't she, Dale, on Aura at this point. She says, keeping our word is what makes us better than you bitch <laughs> I mean it's just like but then later in the film decides not to keep a word so it's fine wonderful uh, I mean again we're not peaked too soon here or anything well no no it's not at all yeah there's still no, there's, no, a, no, there's, no. A, there's a climax to this film that is yeah it's not holding back on the, the visual puns that's for sure <laughs> and this is the whole I, I've just written worst space battle ever the Hawks led by Ryan Blessed, and this is again his <laughs> shouting, Dive! Um, Die! Frequently, as they try and take over this kind of space Ajax rocket thing. And it's just like when you, again, I don't want to compare it to films now, but when you look at, say, some of the more recent, like the, the, the least recent Star Wars films, as ridiculous and generally quite poor that they are. You know some of the sequences there where they board these ships and and all that, and some of the tech here they use. I think one of the bombs they use just looks like it has an extendable antenna um, that they've probably got from the local Tandy. And then another, the yeah, an example, another example of very very poor looking tech, isn't it? Mm, yeah, and I think even then they've just kind of the lasers being shot don't correspond with the lasers flying around. They just couldn't marry up the effects well enough, which also then means that people are kind of throwing themselves on the floor, pretending to be shot when they haven't. It's five minutes of well-soundtracked, blessed chewing the scenery like a bastard, loving it, and yet, yeah, it's one of these simultaneously wonderful and dreadful. Good fun. I think, I think, bro, I think it really is enhanced, though, by the, the battle theme by Brian May. Yeah, so yeah, when that yeah. when those drums kick in, when you get that kind of that sort of those drums kicking, and Brian May comes in on the guitar, the scene basically comes alive. And it is it's it's it looks shit. I mean, in terms <laughs> of the effects, it literally looks like guys on 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 ropes, <laughs> swinging in sort of badly, and it's very uncoordinated looking and terrible. But it does have its moments, though. It does have its moments. And I love the bit when uh, Nero gets hit. So the old guy with the this kind of the squash nose, mm. he gets hit, and Flash is doing the Nero's hit. I'm going in after him. And the, when he gets to Nero, he says, oh, "They just winged me. <laughs> they just winged me." <laughs> Just winged it. He's fine though later though. And I mean, it look, he looks oh, like yeah. he's on his last legs at that point, but then he's fine later. So it's all right. Yeah. They just hosed him down. But he's fine. I mean, I mean, and I love the bit, and it's obviously completely coincidental that I think um, at the end of that bit, and they're off, to, they then decide to go and basically take over Ming's palace for the wedding. And I think 
blessed says, oh, who wants to live forever? Oh, well, who wants to live forever? <laughs> yeah, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? If they then, yeah, they just thought, we'll just take that. We'll take that one. Yeah, they just sort of made a little like that might come in handy one day. We'll use that. Yeah, we'll use mm. that. So then back in the, the main palace, um, Dalton and Doctor in chains, and this just the throwaway line of Timothy Dalton asking Topol to tell him more about this Houdini character. Oh, well, they're chained up. I, I'd never noticed that before. It passed me by. The, the, it's, it's the scene straight after this, which cracks me up when when i was doing the, the um when i was watching this film again revisiting it this particular scene i had to watch it about half a dozen times and i was i was laughing in my i was just i was crying with laughter at this scene it's the, it's the scene where aura tries to change she tries to open the door with her kind of thing on her, on her wrist and she says they've changed the code and then dolls turns around to her and says i've changed to aura and she goes, I've changed too. And then Doll says, I love you. Will you marry me? And she goes, I don't know. We can try. And then Dalton tries to go in for the kiss. And she's like, Aura rebuffs him. I mean, the first time in the movie, she's like actually tried to not shag someone. Dalton goes in for it. And she's, he gets like, not back. And he's like, he can't believe it. The hammiest piece of acting ever. Hammy as hell. But while this is all happening, you've got, Topol thinking, I've, I've figured out this door thing here. And he basically grabs Aura's wrist and he's just moving it around at different <laughs> angles in a very technical way because it's he like knows the, how it works. It's like when the batteries and the remote control are dying and you decide to do it sort of upside down, it works suddenly. It's so hammy, though. It's so hammy. It's so mm. beneath Dalton, I think, as a, as a trained Rada actor, Shakespearean thespian. To be doing this shit, basically. I mean, he's, he's just, you do wonder what he was thinking when he was doing these these scenes. I mean, you wonder when, and there's this clip, and I I, I and a couple of others have shared it on, on social media, where I think it's in that Everything or Nothing documentary about Bond, where Dalton is talking about when he took over the role from Roger Moore and he wanted to take it back to Fleming because it had become a parody of itself. And at this exact time, you know, we're, we've just come off Moonraker in the Bond franchise. And then he's doing all this stuff. And you kind of think, and I know, you know, if you're an actor, you've, you've got to pay the bills, you've got to have fun, you've got to do this sort of stuff. And you kind of think like, it is a bit of low-hanging fruit to come back to this and say, how can you talk about silliness? But, um, I mean, it's just glorious, isn't it? And, I mean, we, we know between us several people who probably wouldn't push uh, Timothy Dalton out of bed for far in that sort of stuff you know he's he's become this kind of almost semi-lustful figure for a lot of people and uh, I think to see him prancing around in tights in a glorified space comedy opera is really is just wonderful fun with a moustache saying bastards oh. a lot as well and this is <laughs> another moment where he bursts into the room with the the classic line freeze you bloody bastards <laughs> Bastards. It's like Dalton. It's like it's a kids' film. Just remember, it's a kids' film. Who, who do you think is watching this? It was bastards a swear word in the eighties? Bastards. I can't mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'll I'll be honest. I mean, as a kid watching this, I didn't actually connect the dots 
and maybe it's just me being stupid, but watching Dalton as Prince Baron, I didn't connect the dots to him in the living daylights immediately. Do you mean it wasn't a, a I just I didn't connect the, the actor because I hadn't seen him in much else apart mm. from Flash Gordon and then suddenly he became James Bond. But he was so different. I mean he was so different in the living daylights as he was to, <laughs> compared to his kind of Errol Flynn type persona in Flash. But well that's very much it though, isn't it? He he did play it as an Errol Finn Errol Flynn type character, you know, I mean down to the look. I suppose that's something, you know, maybe it is him even within this monstrosity of a joyful film. He's still trying to take it back to its sort of early literal beginnings. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a sort of sense that I feel that because of the success of Star Wars, a lot of the actors that were involved in this maybe thought that they might be getting involved with another Titanic hit in the same realm as Star Wars. It wouldn't be inconceivable to think that that's what the kind of project that you were being involved with. There's parts of Star Wars that are quite hammy as well, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, just had better special effects, that's all. Um, what? Yeah, I guess that's the thing. A lot of films, you know, they, they do turn on, you know, maybe that, that one caveat where I wonder if you'd put these effects into Star Wars and or switch the script round or something, how different they would have been or how different they'd have been perceived. A bit of a butterfly effect, sliding doors type of thing. Is One thing I did find a little bit, I suppose if you are a kid, it would be quite scary actually, was when they took the goggles off the geezers around the table in that security room and then they all died. Yeah, they all just you know, fell over. Like they're kind of... It, yeah. You know, they took the glasses off and all the, you can see these wires hanging out and they all, like, they're all connected to one server. You take the glass of one, they all crash, like Windows 10. Yeah. <laughs> it was an interesting idea, though, I think. I mean, this is the thing. that There's lots of great ideas within the film. But I think they, they quite, the, the good ideas and the good parts of it get lost in the pomp and pomposity of, of the whole film. Because then we get to the wedding, which is just everything turned up to, I mean, it's easy to say turned up to 11, turned up to a fucking billion <laughs> it's great yeah a great use of the 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 wedding march as well i wonder how many people particularly queen fans have actually used that version of the wedding march probably uh, a few I, I did request it at my own wedding but oh it really was quickly, it was quickly uh <laughs> shot down it wasn't um, followed by another one bites the dust. It, it, it was just like, it was an immediate dismissal. I was just like, <laughs> all right, fine. I, I don't even know why I even bothered bringing it up because Mrs. doesn't like Queen, so. But, you know, I mean, you've got to try, haven't you? Oh, yeah. It was an opportunity, but, you know, it's gone now. So. I want to have who wants to live forever at my funeral, but um, we'll see. I was going to have uh, I Am the Resurrection by the Stone Roses, but... <laughs> I mean, this, this this whole wedding sequence is just absolutely oh, bizarre and brilliant. I mean, you've got you've got the minister who's just basically implying to Dale that she's probably not going to live very long in a Henry VIII kind of way. You've got the in the background. It was like the plane with a banner. Sort of, it's almost like giving say applause to um, to the audience. And you've got all these things working. You've got the lasers because Flash Gordon's on his way to, to kill Ming. 
So of course, all the lasers and all the weapons from the space from the uh, are off shooting him, and then they're trying to. It's almost like a comical alley thing from the Iraqi war, saying, "Oh no, 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 it's all fine. We're just doing it in celebration of our dear leader." All this stuff going on. I mean, there's so many layers to it that all seem to actually weave in quite well to this kind of farcical ending. Absolutely, and you've got Philip Stone as the uh, the high priestess. Philip Stone, another he, another guy that was in Bond. He played uh, Spectre Number Five oh, in uh, Thunderball. He's one of the guys around the Largo's boardroom meeting. He also plays Grady as well in um, The Shining. But that, oh, the course, mom- yeah. but the moment that he does the the kind of um, do you accept her to be your empress of the of the hour? <laughs> and Ming's line is the, the kind of of the hour. Yes. It's fantastic. It doesn't get any better than that. It's fantastic. Dale obviously goes back on her promise that 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 she keeps her word. So she's obviously not as good as she thinks she is. <laughs> but the way that Flash arrives at the palace, though, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a bit sexual. <laughs> it, it's like remember in the Naked Gun where Leslie Nielsen and Priscilla Presley finally get together and. There's all these like cut scenes of trains going into tunnels and missiles. It's just that. It's it is. Just, oh. It's they're not even trying to hide it. <laughs> Essentially, you've seen the film, obviously. It's just like basically Flash is trying to guide his rocket into a small hole. <laughs> and what else can you say? Yeah, you know I mean? but he's Flash Gordon, so he's bang on target, isn't he? Flash Gordon penetrates me. He's basically giving it to Ming with his with <laughs> from, his rocket from behind. <laughs> oh, it's man. just the least subtle thing ever, isn't it? Yeah, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. To make that, to make that as well, to make that, to make to make that work as well. I mean, I mean, pretending that this is a kind of realistic kind of thing that that would have happened <laughs> for Flash to make that work was something else but they had actually to be fair though they had set up they'd set up this and so it gives it a bit of weight and you can believe in it because at the start of the film i don't know if you remember rich but he says that he's had flying lessons of course yeah Yeah? so they always set that up so that you can if you were ever to question this moment you can say but no but he had flying lessons so Mm -hmm. he would be perfectly capable of directing a phallic shaped rocket into a small hole this man is no novice. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. And he's the, the, literally the king of the impossible. I mean, that's what a lot of people think about this film. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, it's just the brazen ending to it. And then we do get the whole kind of, you know, Ming slides off. God, that sounds just a bad. <laughs> Ming, Ming slides yeah. off the phallus and then tries to use his sex ring Fucking hell! He tries to use this. <laughs> he tries to use the kids film. Kids film. He tries to use the sex ring on Flash, but um, it doesn't work. So, because again, with this, I mean, at the beginning when he used the sex ring on Dale, it turned her into basically a, a lap dancer. So, what was he hoping Flash would do? I don't know. I mean, he just suddenly, I don't know, start stripping like a Chippendale or something. I don't know. And then he ends up turning it on himself and dies. I mean, this must be a multifunctional sex ring. Or does he die? Does he does he actually die though? That's the thing. Well, that's the yeah, there's the ending it, for you. Because that's the thing, isn't it? All the actors were signed on to 
like a three film deal, wasn't mm. it? And yeah. They didn't get it because of the the box office return wasn't so great. When because he sort of vanishes anyway, and then we see like the, again the caption because we've we've got the ending where all is well and Dalton and and Aura king and queen of the world and that's and actually a good and... moment that's a good moment because that you've got the the the, uh, the hawkmen doing their essentially it's like synchronized swimming but in the <laughs> air they've not had long to rehearse no you mean but uh, it's a great moment the, the thanks flash you wonder how many times they, had to, they get to, to get that right thanks flush oh, you've spelled it wrong you spelled it wrong lads you're gonna have to do it again Suppose if you're using a if you're using a Spectrum 48K to do the graphics, then uh, it looked alright. And it's another one of those moments, isn't it, with uh, with social media and and the use of gifs. That Tim, the, the the Timothy Dalton moment, the proud moment that mm. Dalton gives, when he's kind of just kind of nodding his head. I've used that a number of times in <laughs> conversations about GIF. I've got about three copies of it on my phone just for just for regular use. It just looks so happy. He looks he's so like a, good. He's like a puppy who's learned how to sit. And yes, everyone lives happily ever after. We've had the thanks for And then that's the, the caption of the end. And then the, the gloved hand comes out to take the sex ring. And then the question mark appears at the end. It's like, it was like in Back to the Future where they retro put in like to be continued. But um, as, as uh, 41 years, we're still waiting for a sequel for this. And uh, I think most of the cast is still alive. Is Taika Waititi not making a Flash Gordon remake? Or is he too busy doing Star Wars now? I don't know. I mean, I think at one point he was yeah. doing a film, but I think he, I think he's involved in Star Wars too heavily now to probably do that now, I would say. Well, yeah, and I think he's doing... I mean, the weird thing is, is that his the four film, because he's doing another one of those, is I think the way his interpretation of that was quite what you'd expect from a Flash Gordon. It was quite loud and brash. And I think the, the Ragnarok one that he did was, that was quite Flash Gordon. I think very much seeing so. that. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, and I wonder if there's an irony there that that was probably the Marvel film or one of the ones that I enjoyed the most. But I think there's definitely something there that that styling was in that film. So I wonder if, if that would be something that they might look into or they're just going to take all the, the best hammy bits and put it onto his other work. But be it's interesting. The thing, though, it's whether you can do another kind of high camp Flash Gordon or you do it a bit more serious. I mean, you take it in the direction probably of what they originally wanted to do with it. Yeah. yeah it could work. I mean, it could work. If it was done in the style of Ragnarok, then it'd be, it could be fantastic. I think I think that's where you'd have to go with it because again, with in that you had Jeff Goldblum playing the. I mean, he wasn't the villain as such, but he was the closest to a Ming in there, and and he. I mean, it's Jeff Goldblum, isn't it? But it's. Um, I think I almost feel that now that we've talked about it, that Ragnarok seems to be Flash Gordon, and that's probably the closest we're going to get. Which is a shame. Yeah, if that's the case. Yeah. But there's definitely, you know, such a drive for adaptations and changes to source material and stuff that there must be some somewhere in the universe someone has the rights to Flash Gordon and are looking at some way of turning it into the next franchise or or something but you really really have to get it right it's yeah. a quite a, it's a very fine balance absolutely yeah but it could work absolutely it could work 
but we'll see. I mean, it's kind of, um, again, it's one of the, it's, it's unusual to have a film which kind of exists within a vacuum to a certain degree. But in terms of the films that were coming out at that time, it's sort of, although I was a big obsessive of Star Wars and still am, um, films like Battle Beyond the Stars and The Last Starfighter from 1984, a bit later, but then, and Tron and sort of, Crawl to an, an even extent as well, where this these sort of fantasy, science fictiony sort of films. I mean, I I bought all that stuff back in the day. I mean, I, I loved it all as much as I did Star Wars. Maybe not quite as much as Star Wars, but it was all acceptable to me at the time. I think Flash is sort of Flash Gordon has shown its durability. I think it's 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 funnier, and I think there's a lot more humor in it as a film, and it's obviously a much better made film than say a film like. Battle Beyond the Stars, which is pretty shoddy, really, to be honest. I enjoyed it at the time, but it doesn't stand up to repeat. Yeah. Whereas Flash, I think there's a lot of great scenes. That pretty much every scene in the film is entertaining, I would say, and has some sort of merit, whether it's of a high production value or not. <laughs> um, the performances are very amusing. What can, I mean, what can you say? I mean, I, I watched The Last Starfighter last week, actually, and it did have a lot of it, that, that kind of alien sort of race, the, the way that the makeup and the prosthetics and, and that were kind of done. And to be honest, the, the graphics and the CGI were probably quite similar as well. And, you know, they, they do live together as a double bill, I suppose. But, yeah, I think, um, I mean, now and now in these, these earnest days of three-hour epics and stuff, I think... Uh, Four-hour epics. Oh, for, I mean, well, of course, yes. you've got the you've got the Snyder cut for um, the superhero film, which I'm going to watch. Yeah, I, um, I watched it. It was a that was a hard one. That's what that's what she said. So oh, this film's washing off, and we got on. I'm starting to use that's what she said. This is probably a four hour cut of this here somewhere. Probably, yeah. I, I've never seen it. Yeah, I've not seen any of the. I've not seen many deleted scenes from it. But uh, yeah, I wonder if that's on the um, the super duper four K limited edition that. I know we we were joking about angling for, and I didn't get a sniff. It was almost like when we were looking for those feeler jackets uh, when All Bar Brown were doing them. I never got a sniff of those either. Oh, so. oh no, no, never. No. It's, yeah. it's way beyond way beyond my expertise to get my hands on those. I mean, if you can if you can uh, say the right things to All Bar Brown, um, they might well, give you one for free. Maybe but, uh, we know some people who do, but they will make you work for it though. So. Yeah. Yeah, is is it worth it? I don't know. It's a grift. Well, yeah, no, anyway, thanks a lot for inviting me on to talk about this film. It's just, um, yeah, was... I think I'll be able to watch it again in twenty years' time and still enjoy <laughs> it as much, and hopefully find some new things. Well, I did try. I was considering letting my uh, my son watch it, but my my <laughs> wife, having seen like the two minutes that she saw, she said, "Are you sure this is what you should be uh, like exposing our son to?" And I was like, "Maybe not." probably just as well when it when they're a bit older they'll appreciate it all that more yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh well marty um as we discussed thank you very much for coming um now tell us a little bit around i know probably anyone who anyone knows about fundables but um you've done several big updates since we last spoke on the fundables do you want to give us a little rundown of what we can expect um yeah we've well, we've kind of um the last big update we did was for license to kill and there was a number of um, images, photographs by a gentleman called John Stember, who was actually the husband of Carrie Lowell 
at the time of filming Westerns to Kill. Mm-hmm. So he seemingly had access to the production and took a number of what looked kind of like promotional stills, but they, they certainly weren't promotional stills. Some of them looked kind of like proto-promo stills. They were in locations that weren't like in a photographic studio. But there's also quite quite a few pictures of Carrie Lowell in a, in a in a bedroom, and they look quite intimate. I remember so it's that. kind of they're quite strange photographs, but they also capture the moment where Carrie Lowell gets her hair cut into that beautiful bob cut that you see in the film. Um, so that was our last update. There was about 150 pictures in that update. It's probably the last big update we're going to do until No Time to Die, which we can't do because we haven't seen the film. And the whole point of the site, if you've ever looked at it, is that the production stills are in chronological order as much as we can make out anyway. So we can't put them we can't put them on the site. And we want to put all the stills for the film in one go rather than just put in bits and pieces here and there. I think most of us seem to have seen the film from the various adverts and <laughs> leaks and stuff already, isn't it? It's weird. Yeah. I'm trying not to look at it too much, although I've, I've, I've kind of been trying to grab as many pictures from it as possible, but without trying to dissect it too much and analyse it. I still haven't mm. watched the, the last trailer that came out because I'm trying to kind of keep something back for when I eventually get to see the film. But, but that's the plan, yeah. But we're, we're still at it. We're still... The one other thing is um, there will be a bonus um, section of stills for Never Say Never Again. So there you, there you go. Um, I was held at gunpoint <laughs> that one. So uh, I'm, I'm not to blame. Well, to be honest, I mean, we um, we still uh, when we had the conversation with Steve Clamp when we did the episode about on about that about a year ago, I think watching that film again, uh, going too much into that, I think the first seventy five percent of the film was actually better than I remembered until I got to the end and very quickly lost the will to live. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see a bit more about that because it's always been treated as the kind of distant relative. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not judging the film as such. I'm just, the reason why we never included it before is just because it's not young. Yeah, and of course. That, that was the only reason. Yeah, there's, there's going to be a few good stills from that coming. So stay okay. tuned. Looking forward to that. Well, um, as we normally do on the podcast, we play out the song, as I normally, with the song that was number one in the UK charts at the time of the film's release. Now, this film was released in the UK on the 11th of December, 1980 and the number one song was super trooper by abba now i guess abba doing a soundtrack for a film seems like the sort of almost the next step for them i suppose they didn't maybe they were approached to do this as well but um i think in the spirit of where we've talked about a soundtrack almost as much as the film i think maybe we should use oh what should we use should we use the wedding march for the end of this sounds good to me yeah, because quite frankly, I so this film is so sexually charged, I think you have to marry it legally at the end. So. <laughs> Just to give it a bit of legitimacy at the end, yeah. Yeah, don't yeah, get awkward questions. <laughs> oh, anyway, Marty, thank you very much. Great stuff, thank you.
This podcast was brought to you by executive producers Keith Foster, Jimmy Fletcher, Mark Drakes, Matt Cunnington, Chris Hopkins, Omar Zambon, Ian Madrill, Catherine Lowe, Mark Makin, Zoltan Vargo, Simon Smith, Wayne McNally, Darren Hodgkins, Dan Wellington, Alex Heal, Philip Rothenberger, Alan Fewings, Tom Carr, James Kennedy, Simon Pegg, Joe Harrison, Anita Singh, Doug Grant, Andrew Elliott, Bobby Richmond, associate producer Chris Oakley. Visit patreon.com forward slash Betamax Video Club for more information around bonus episodes, early access, discounted merchandise and more.